Hi, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. You know by now that I'm a bass player. I became a bassist as a teenager after volunteering to learn the instrument in the mid-60s for my first band after this little group from Liverpool, England emerged and changed the world. Before then, I played the trumpet just like my dad. But suddenly the trumpet wasn't very cool anymore, so I taught myself guitar and then the bass. My bandmates were struggling to learn the guitar, so I volunteered to learn the bass, and it turned out to be a life-changing move for me. After interviewing a number of famous bassists on this podcast, I discovered that my story is typical. None of them started out on the bass. They got there in different ways. A few started out on the trumpet, like me, including a guy named Paul McCartney. If you listen carefully to popular music, you know that it's the bass and the drums that drive every band. I've been fortunate to have some of the best basses ever on this podcast. I thought it would be fun to revisit the interviews of several of them and pick out a few gems to replay. So here goes. Leland Sklar has played on a zillion recordings and is particularly known for his work with so many of the singer-songwriters of the 1970s, like James Taylor, Carol King, and Jackson Brown. Listen now as he describes his first time performing with James Taylor. At the end of the 60s, I was in a band called Wolfgang, and we were managed by Bill Graham, whose real name was Wolfgang. And we thought, what better thing to, way to suck up to your manager than by naming your band after him? <laughs> uh, and, it, and I'm still in touch with the, the guys who are still sur you know, surviving. We lost a few of those members uh, over the years. But our drummer, uh, his name was Bugs Pemberton, uh, was an English drummer who was a, a member of Jackie Lomax and the Undertakers in England, who were rivals of the Beatles back in the day. Uh, he eventually moved to Los Angeles, and he had a, a, a close friend named John Fishbeck, who owned Crystal Recording Studio in Los Angeles, and he had done like all the Stevie Wonder's early records, Songs in the Key of Life, and things like that. Uh, John used to come up and hang out at our rehearsals with us, and at one of the rehearsals, a friend of his had just gotten back from, the, from England, and he brought him to our rehearsal, and it was James. Uh, he had just come back after doing his first Apple album. And he hung out, uh, came up for a couple of days and hung out with us. And we listened to some of his songs. And we actually ended up doing a, a, like a hard rock version of Country Road. Uh, we just we thought he was great. You know, totally different than us because we were totally, you know, two guitars, Hammond B3, drums and bass and singer. So we were more of a total hard rock band, but we loved his writing. Then James got offered a gig at the Troubadour when his when his uh, Sweet Baby James album came out, and the the band was uh, Carol King on piano, and uh, Russ Kunkel on drums and Danny Korchmar on guitar, but they didn't have a bass player. And James told Peter Asher, who was managing and producing him, he said, "I was at this rehearsal and I heard this guy, and I think he'd be perfect for us." And they tracked me down, I think through through Fishbeck, and. 
next thing I know, I'm playing, they asked if I want to do this. I said, sure, I was still in college. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, I'd love to play it, you know, figured it was one gig, you know, what could I lose? And we played that gig and all of a sudden James was on the cover of Time Magazine and everything changed. And they said, we got a tour, do you want to do a tour? And I said, yeah, well, that, that first gig turned into the next 50 plus years. Nathan East has also played on a zillion recordings, from Footloose to his work with Eric Clapton. Here he tells what it was like as a teenager to figuratively attend Barry White University. Our band called Power, that was, uh, we, we did a lot of work out of San Diego, and it, it just had a lot of star players. And we played a Stax review at the sports arena and it had all their artists like uh, Rufus Thomas and Barry White. And so we backed up all the artists and Barry White, after we played for him, he hired the entire band on the spot. And I'll never forget, we went up to Los Angeles, met with it, met with him at his office in uh, on Beverly Boulevard. And we were so excited and, and, and he hired us and we were gonna get $500 a week. You know? <laughs> And, uh, and we pay our own hotels. <laughs> when we, and here we are high-fiving each other in front of him. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we made it. We made it. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> when, you're, when you're a teenager, you know, I mean, that's just like you won the lottery. Absolutely. And, and um, so, you know, then I got called to, you know, that was on the touring side, but then, he called me to start coming into the studio and, and laying down, making those records with him. And so that again was just a, like I say, going to Barry White University, these, these bass lines that he would just come over and sing to you. He, he didn't really write it out. And he'd just come there, the groove Ed Green would be over there playing drums. The next thing you know, Barry's singing, you know, this line, bo, bo, bo. And so you're just playing that. And, uh, and it's, and then everything, you know, he'd go over to Ray Parker and sing him a line and go over to Lee Rittenauer and wah wah. And, and everybody would get their line. And then you just said, oh man, look at him just carving out a hit right now. You know? Remarkable. It's incredible. Jimmy Haslip made his mark as a bassist with the Yellow Jackets, one of the great fusion bands. As a youngster growing up in New York City, he was a frequent patron of the Fillmore East. Here he describes a particular show that he attended there. I mean, I, I got blown away countless times at the Fillmore. I, I went there to see a group called Blood, Sweat and Tears. And uh, I think also on the bill was, was uh, a, a group called Bloodwind Pig. Right. <laughs> which was an offshoot of Jethro Tull. It was Mick Abrams' band, who right. was the original guitar player. Guitar player. And then there was another band I never heard of. And they were the, they were the opener. So they come out, they get introduced. I said, you know, their first, uh, uh, this is their first U.S. tour. Please welcome Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I'm going like, okay, great. And they start playing, and I just, I couldn't believe it. Uh, what they played, you know, seeing Bonham and Jimmy Page. Robert Plant and John Paul Jones. I just, after that, I was blown away. I was ready to go home after that. But then <laughs> Bloodwind Pig was great and Blood, Sweat and Tears was incredible. So, you know, that's a full night of music and you just walk away with, 
you know, so much uh, positivity, that's all I could say. Chuck Rainey has been part of the New York session scene for decades, working with Aretha Franklin, Steely Dan, and so many others. He played on Rock Steady, Aretha's massive hit song, and describes what went on during that session. Well, Rock Steady, um, uh, it was recorded in the Criteria in Miami, and it was in the winter. And um, everybody in the crew in the rhythm section, we enjoyed going down to Miami in the winter, if you know what I mean. Yep. And um, we were housed in one place, and uh, Tommy Dowd and Arif Martin and Jerry Wexler and uh, maybe whoever, whoever else was there other than the band, they were staying someplace else. And so we were picked up and brought to the studio and none of the big brass were there. So Aretha taught us the song. So it was her song? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Rocksteady, oh for sure. Okay. One of the very few songs that she wrote. Anyway, Gene Paul was the second engineer and Gene was in the studio. So once we learned the song, he just recorded a demo. We just played it. Uh -huh. We recorded a demo. So when Jerry Wexler got there with uh, Tommy Dowd and whoever else came with them, Arif had to, number one, chart the song because he's the dedicated orchestrator or you know arranger. And so he has to know what's going on. And as you listen to Rocksteady, you know that it's easy. By the way, for everybody that's listening, all the guys that Chuck is talking about were from Atlantic Records, because that was the label that Aretha was on. Absolutely. Go ahead. So we spent all morning working on Rocksteady. Jerry Wexler being the producer, and we just played over and over, tried this, we tried that. They tried everything. So you didn't have that final kind of vibe until sometime after you began? Is that the deal? Well... The rhythm section, we had it. <laughs> but of course, when it gets to a producer and a ranger and other people that are around. They got to schmutz it up. We could not do anything better to it to make it sound right. Uh -huh. So what the public is hearing is the demo that we made before the producer and the head engineer got to the studio. Isn't that something? All, all they did was take it back to New York, add percussion, and King Curtis added um, a, a horn solo and uh, and 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 uh, the the horns, but we couldn't get the, we could not get past the demo. Brit Lightning has performed with Pink, Rachel Platten, and the all female band Vixen. She also auditioned to play with Lady Gaga, and she describes the experience here. All right, so you're you're in the Gaga auditions. Is she there at the time? Okay, she's not there for like the first two callbacks, I think. And then we go to a sound stage somewhere else and she's there for the next callbacks. And what is she like? Is she sitting in a chair? Is she friendly? Is she talking to you? Is she, you know, playing with a telephone? What is she doing? She was at a table looking at us um, down below and we were like on an elevated stage and she was just kind of observing. She introduced herself and said hi and she was cool, but she was also like a little bit um, challenging um, to me and some, you know, other people just, yeah, I think she was in a state or she was wanted to see 
like how much she could push people. Um, like she asked me to, you know, shave my head. She said I would <laughs> shave my head if I wanted to be in the band and stuff like that. So um, she was, she was interesting. She's, she's a character, you know, she's, she's Lady Gaga. Jim Fielder was the magnificent bassist in Blood, Sweat and Tears. But before that band, he was a member of Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention and also Buffalo Springfield. In this clip, Jim talks about his time with the Springfield. All right, so tell me about Buffalo Springfield. I did not know that you were playing with them. When was this? At what point in their career? Uh, it, it, it wasn't uh, very long. The reason I got the gig is that their, their bass player, uh, Bruce Palmer, uh, got himself deported back to Canada. And so they, they needed someone yesterday. Right. And uh, I had known them because I played with a group in L.A. that was managed by a guy who managed Buffalo Springfield. So, you know, we uh, hung out together and, um, and everything. So it was uh, perfectly natural for them to, to come to me and, and uh, offer me the gig. And I took it. And lasted, this was during the period of time that for what it's worth was like a, a hit. It was on the radio. And so they were starting to play some, some pretty, pretty good sized gigs. So Stephen Stills was in the band at that point still, and Neil Young was in the band? Right. And Richie Fure and Dewey Martin from Seattle was the drummer. But just after, oh, about four or five months, uh, Bruce Palmer snuck back into the country, <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally snuck across the border. And uh, uh, Stephen uh, gave him the gig back right on the spot. I mean, I was I was fired with virtually no notice. Oh, dear. So that was uh, the, that, that was probably one of the lowest points in my career. Timothy B. Schmidt has performed with Poco and the Eagles. In this clip, he talks about joining the Eagles and his big hit with them, I Can't Tell You Why. Well, when I first started getting together with Don and Glenn for what would become my first Eagles album, they wanted to hear what I had because uh, they wanted me to sing at least one lead, the new guy. They wanted the new guy to sing it at one. But we needed like a really great avenue. We needed a great song. And... Um, so I played them, I don't remember what, I played them a few songs and, and, a, and a couple of pieces of songs. And I can't tell you why at the time was a piece of a song. And they really, they really lit up when they heard that. And they said, we can, we can all finish this one together. This will be good. And I was really happy that it wasn't a country rock song. I was glad that it was more R&B flavored because I, um, I just, you know, I'm a fan of R and B. I, 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 you know, even though my years before, when I started playing my instruments for the first time with my band, we were like playing surf music. But I was listening to Motown all the time on the radio every time I got in the car. Okay. So anyway, we we finished that song, and it took us a, a year, year and a half to to finish that long run album. Um, obviously, we weren't at it the whole time, but it, it was just it was. It was, it was time consuming. 
And uh, so we did a lot of traveling to Florida to to record and then come back and try and write and arrange stuff. And and it was um, it was great. I was I was loving it. By the way, was the first lead vocal to to be completed on that record on the, the long run album. Not that that means anything, but it's just it just is, you know. Susie Quattro is one of the most popular artists of the rock era. Here she talks about becoming a bassist and her first bass guitar. I am a percussive musician, having gone from bongos to proper percussion in the band. I played in school band, first chair on the band, by the way. I got to first chair, which means I did the best on the rudiment test. And also piano is classed as a percussive instrument. So I am that way inclined anyway. Uh, we started the band after seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. We all got on the phone and Patty, my sister, said, why don't we start an organ band? Great. And everybody went, I want rhythm guitar. I want drums. I want this. I want that. And I went, hello. I just, and I'm never quiet. It's fate. I was quiet. I said, what am I going to play? And Patty said, you're playing bass. I said, Okay. And I went to my dad. This is my favorite part of the story because he was been a musician. We had every instrument in the house. We had three pianos, three proper pianos in the house. We had a harp. We had a two different accordions. We had guitars. We had banjos. Everything you can think of was in this house. I said, Dad, we're starting a band. I'm playing bass. Do you have one? He said, sure. You know what my first bass was? You're going to go green. You're going to want to, if you had a gun, you'd shoot me right now. My first bass given to me to learn on and to play was a 1957 Fender Precision. <laughs> John Lodge was a member of the Moody Blues, the enormously popular English band. In this clip, he talks about their record label's idea for a follow-up to their massive hit album, Days of Future Past. I remember after Days of Future Past, uh, the A&R department at Decca decided they should be part of the success of the Moody Blues. They hadn't done anything at all to do with it. And we had a meeting with them one day, and they said, we've got the next single for you. And we're, pardon? Yeah, somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> and he was like, oh, good night. <laughs> And that's the last meeting we ever had with the ANL department. So there it is, a special episode with some of the great bassists that I've been fortunate to have on this podcast. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.